Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 15, Tests of Faith. I'm Brandon Seal. Alonso Castillo looked terrified. Then again, he may have been a bit of a meeker soul to begin with. It's hard to know for sure, because neither of the two surviving accounts of the Narvaez expedition seemed to come from Castillo directly. And even in the so-called joint report, Castillo's voice gets swallowed by Cabeza de Vaca's and Dorantes's. But Castillo was actually one of the highest-born men amongst the original Narvaez expeditionaries. He had relatives in high positions in the Castilian administration of the New World, so it hadn't been an unnatural thing for him to have sold off part of his estate to buy a captaincy in Narvaez's expedition. He was of the class in Castilian society that was born to command. Yet even in the surviving expedition accounts, we never really see him acting as a commander. As I mentioned, he's more often than not overshadowed by the other two Castilians, like when he went along with Cabeza de Vaca on some of his scouting missions back in Florida, or when he served as the more subdued co-commander with the more veteran Dorantes on one of the five doomed rafts that the expeditionaries had taken out into the Gulf of Mexico. It's curious, then, that it was to Castillo whom Native Americans first looked to heal whatever it was that was ailing them. The natives had only met Castillo the day before, when a strange-looking black man had preceded him and two other bearded pink men into their village. The black man, Esteban, he said his name was, told the villagers that he and the other three were medicine men. Fortunately, according to one of the accounts, the natives, quote, had already heard news of us, end quote, and were honored by their presence. These people call themselves Avavares, and the Avavar village, we assume, was somewhere perhaps in modern-day Star County. And in that village, the four expeditionaries were met by the most charitable reception they'd had since landing on Galveston Island six years before. Quote, the Avavares acted like they were happy to have us and took us to their lodges, end quote. Esteban and Durantes in particular, they housed with their own medicine man on the edge of the village. Medicine men occupied a special niche in Native American society. They existed somewhere between the material and the spiritual realms, between the knowable and the unknowable, and so the rules were different for them. In bands that normally practiced monogamy, medicine men were allowed multiple wives. In bands that buried their dead, medicine men were instead burned. And in almost all tribes, medicine men were rewarded for successful cures with handsome payments from their patients. The expeditionaries had not failed to notice this over the last six years, and it wouldn't have been hard for them to conclude that life as a medicine man was better than the life that they had known. Of course, you couldn't just become a medicine man. You had to be called to it, and you had to have a certain amount of presence and showmanship. By default, the four expeditionaries had a little bit of that going for them. They certainly looked different than anyone else wandering around South Texas at that time. Of course, the most important part of being a medicine man was being able to actually cure people. And so the same night that the four expeditionaries arrived in the Avavar village, they were put to the test. Cabeza de Vaca tells how several Indians were brought before them, quote, saying they had terrible headaches and begging us to cure them, end quote. But more specifically, we find out, they were brought before Alonso Castillo. Again, why Castillo? Cabeza de Vaca was the oldest of the four, 
and seemed to be kind of the acknowledged leader. And he'd been a bit of a student of these medicine men since his days trading red ochre with them on the upper Texas coast. Durantes and Esteban also would have been more logical choices, since they were the ones that the natives had put up with their own medicine men when they arrived at the village. But instead, they went to the meekest looking of the lot, Castillo, and they put him to the test. Or maybe the four expeditionaries steered the ailing Indian patients to Castillo. Because there's another interesting fact here that I should include. Castillo's father was a doctor. I guess I shouldn't overplay this either because there's not a lot of detail about it in the accounts and there's no suggestion that he's using any of his medical insights to affect his cures. And it certainly didn't do anything for his self-confidence. He was always a reluctant medicine man, worried that, quote, his sins might interfere with his cures and that they would not all work out well, end quote. Which also kind of fits with my rather baseless portrait of him as having been more generally humble or mild-mannered. But I think the fact of Castillo's humility and of his uncertainty about his ability to cure is also revealing about the states of minds of the expeditionaries as they embarked on their new career as medicine men. It's tempting from our modern perspective to assume that their cures were just some kind of carnival trick. But everything in the accounts suggests that the expeditionaries took them dead seriously. They believed that when they were performing cures, they were accessing something divine or something anyway beyond their control. They trusted, perhaps because they had to, that if these Indians were asking them to cure, that it was in fact God asking them to cure. And that if God wanted them to cure, God would cure through them, but only if they truly handed themselves over to become his instrument, encomendarse. Interestingly, this is precisely what their patients would have had to have believed as well. This act of curing, of faith healing, to use a different word, was a moment that always brought together the old world and the new in ways that nothing else so far had. These old worlders and new worlders could barely communicate by words and signs. They could barely even comprehend each other's worlds. Yet when Alonso Castillo closed his eyes and raised his hands in front of the first patient, everyone present was united in their belief that something unknowable and otherworldly was transpiring between them. And they knew that they had to believe that for it to work. So maybe the expeditionaries were the ones who wanted Castillo to perform the first cures precisely because he was the meekest of them. Perhaps they viewed their most pious and most doubting companion as the most fitting conduit for divine intervention. In any case, with a handful of ailing Indians in front of him, Castillo began to recite his paternosters and Ave Marias in what even his patients might have sensed was a different language from the ones that the expeditionaries spoke amongst themselves. Then, Castillo lay his hands on the afflicted, or maybe he breathed on them, or passed a warm stone over them, or made some small incisions in their skin, imitating what they had learned of the practices of native shamans. And lastly, to close out, Castillo made the sign of the cross over his patients. In manos tuas comendo espíritu meio. Quote, and as soon as he had made the sign of the cross and commended them to God's care, at that moment, the Indians said that their pain was entirely gone, end quote. It had worked. The now healed Avavares, quote, went back to their lodges and brought us many prickly pears and a piece of venison, which we didn't even recognize, end quote. It had been that long since the expeditionaries had eaten meat, they had forgotten what it looked like. And then the Avavares 
brought them more patients. Quote, and as news of our cures spread among them, they came back with other sick people that same night for Castillo to cure, end quote. And somehow it kept working. All of a sudden, four expeditionaries who had been on the brink of starvation for the last half decade now had more food than they knew what to do with. It seems, of course, like the natural impulse would have been to hoard it. But they didn't, either because they simply couldn't or because another idea occurred to them. They decided instead to give away everything that they couldn't eat themselves. And by giving away their bounty, they began to generate an immense amount of goodwill, and their fame began to spread even further. For three days, and most unexpectedly, people came from far and wide, like a small music festival on a dairy farm in upstate New York, swelling into a mass migration of hundreds of thousands of people. It may not have been hundreds of thousands in this case, but the magnitude of the social movement that the four expeditionaries were about to set off in proportion to the population of the countryside they were in was even greater. And yet this influx of people created a problem. The prickly pears near the Avavar village were soon picked clean. The Avavares, who at first enjoyed the prestige and perhaps commercial benefits of playing host to these now famous medicine men, nevertheless realized that they needed to move somewhere else if they were going to be able to forage with any success. The expeditionaries agreed with them. Their goal wasn't to be medicine men. Their goal was to keep moving toward the Rio Panuco, where they thought they might be able to rejoin their countrymen. And so with the Avavares, they journeyed south for five days until they arrived at the biggest river they had seen since the mighty Mississippi had scattered their flotilla of rafts back in 1528. This river was, most scholars think, the Rio Grande, somewhere in the vicinity perhaps of modern-day Lake Falcon, though I should acknowledge that there are some who have the expeditionaries turning inland several months ago and perhaps following the Colorado River up into Texas. Whichever river it was, the four expeditionaries and their native host didn't cross it yet, but they made camp nearby. The prickly pears were starting to give out, however, and as they did, it meant that the natives and the four expeditionaries had to spend more time foraging. It also meant that there were fewer groupies traveling to meet them, fewer patients to heal, and less wealth to spread. In times of hunger, it seems, even medicine men had to go find their own food. And so the four expeditionaries, like the rest of the Avavares, began to pass their days seeking out the now scarcer seasonal forage that supported the natives for most of the year in South Texas. In this case, looking primarily for a kind of grass or vetch that wasn't easy to find. Hunger soon began to push them to the edges of their ranges. And one day, as Cabeza de Vaca searched further and further from camp for fresh foraging grounds, he wandered off a bit too far, out of sight of the rest of his band. When night fell, he found himself alone. And after several hours of trying to pick his way home through the brush, he gave up and admitted that he was lost. It was by now the winter of 1534. And winter in South Texas can be a surprisingly bitter thing, particularly when you are, as Cabeza de Vaca frequently reminds us, quote, desnudo como nací, end quote. Naked is the day I was born. It's a line that should help re-emphasize for us just how vulnerable Cabeza de Vaca felt in this moment. In addition to the fact that everything in the countryside around him wanted to bite, sting, or kill him, layer on top of that the crushing psychological effect of being alone again. 
Cabeza de Vaca had just endured a brutal extra year of slavery, and only just a few months ago been reunited with his three fellow expeditionaries. It was this comradeship with the other expeditionaries that more than anything seemed to give Cabeza de Vaca purpose. It reminded him of the duty of service that he owed to his companions. But now, that was ripped away from him. And worse still, it was happening just weeks after he had seemed to have found a way to finally move through this strange land and escape his captivity. He and his companions' new status as medicine men had absolutely changed their prospects. How cruel that now, after this recent little ray of hope, how cruel that now he should be cast out into the wilderness by himself and left to his own devices. Then, as he was fending off these thoughts, Cabeza de Vaca thought he saw ahead of him something glowing. He started walking toward it. It was a fire, he soon realized. But as he drew closer, he heard no voices, which was strange for a campfire of this size. He came closer still, until at last he saw what it was. Quote, it pleased God that I should find a burning tree. End quote. In the middle of Star County, Texas, somewhere under the waters of modern-day Lake Falcon, perhaps, Cabeza de Vaca had just stumbled onto a burning bush. Now, Cabeza de Vaca actually doesn't draw any attention to the very obvious biblical parallel here, even choosing to use the word tree instead of bush, but I'd be willing to venture that no one, at least no contemporary of Cabeza de Vaca's who read this account, didn't call to mind Moses here. And of course, for Cabeza de Vaca himself, could there have been any clearer sign that his God was watching over him? And so reassured, Cabeza de Vaca passed that first night next to the warmth of the burning bush, and then set out the next day to search again for his band. Wisely, he took with him a pair of burning sticks so that he wouldn't be without fire the next night, which indeed is what it came to. As that second night fell, Cabeza de Vaca went down to the riverbank, collected some firewood, and then scratched out a hole in the ground. He set up four fires all around him on all four sides, quote, like a cross, end quote in his words, to ward off any animals and to keep himself warm. It occurs to me that from above, he might have looked like he was pinned to a flaming crucifix, an image that I find to be a bit heavenly, but a bit hellish as well, frankly. For five nights, Cabeza de Vaca continued this routine, all alone in the South Texas brush. Quote, and all this time, I didn't eat a mouthful, because I couldn't find anything to eat, and as my feet were bare, they bled profusely. A hard cold front, he believed, would have finished him off, but he was spared this fate. Instead, it was actually his own cleverness that almost killed him. One night, after laying himself down in his hole and setting fires all around him, he covered himself in some long grass to try to keep warm. But after he had fallen asleep, a spark jumped and set the grass on top of him on fire. In his hungry and fatigued state, he was slow to react. Quote, Asleep in my hole, the fire began to burn fiercely. And as quickly as I was able to get myself out of it, I still had all my hair singed, end quote. With his hair on fire, he leapt out of the hole, looking like nothing so much as a demon emerging from the underworld. He beat out the flames, caught his breath, and counted his blessings. The next day, continuing to follow the river, he finally stumbled back into the band of Avavares and found himself reunited with Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban. 
His reappearance to the native band and the story that accompanied it only would have made him seem more mysterious, more medicine man-like to his native hosts, though in reality, he probably looked a bit like a corpse with singed hair, sunken eyes, and charred skin. His companions, he found out, had given him up for dead, and so they were overjoyed at his miraculous reappearance. Quote, and we gave many thanks to our Lord because we were never lacking in his aid, end quote, says the man who for five days ate not a mouthful, his feet bleeding from the rough terrain he had to cover, and burned so severely that he still, years later, carried scars from it. If that seems like a strange sentiment to you in such circumstances, I encourage you to go back to listen to episode 11, where we talked a little about the faith of Cabeza de Vaca. The day after Cabeza de Vaca's reappearance, five new lame Indians were brought before the expeditionaries. By this point, it had been a few weeks or a month or two even since the expeditionaries had last cured. And so the timing of this right after Cabeza de Vaca's return is a little suspicious to me. I wonder if maybe the natives wanted to test the expeditionaries again, and particularly Cabeza de Vaca's pretty incredible claims to divine protection during his days wandering through the brush country. And yet, it wasn't to Cabeza de Vaca that the natives brought these five, quote, lame and very ill, end quote, Indians, doyidos y enfermos. And this is the downside to relying on your success as a medicine man to keep moving. Once you stop healing, you're not really a medicine man, and so you're not worthy of any special treatment. And if you fail in one of your cures, well, that's even worse than if you'd never tried. As the five lame Indians came before them, Alonso Castillo realized that there was, quote, no other means by which the people would help them leave this miserable life, end quote. And so once again, Alonso Castillo looked terrified. He lifted his hands, however, and began to pray on the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think this is a story worth sharing, please tell one friend. And if you haven't already, please go rate and leave a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on therevardreport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache and was composed by Kevin Graham and is available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.